Well, good morning, One Church. What's up? My name is Carlo, and I get to be one of the teaching pastors here at One Church. Shout out to everyone watching online or in the overflow room. If you're a first-time guest, we are glad that you are with us. We're going to continue our Address the Mess series today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 24. We'll get there in a little bit. In this series, we've all come to terms with the idea that we know a mess when we see one because we are one. We've talked about being hot messes, and we're not supposed to stay a mess, but it's okay to be a mess, and we've kind of said that word mess maybe more times than should be said in a month, but we get the picture, right? Life is messy. Church is messy. Following Jesus is messy. But really what we understand is that our mess can be the very vehicle that brings God near to us. It could be the very thing that connects us with God. And so uh, in addressing the mess, there's a little bit of embracing our mess that comes along with it. Last week, we learned that the Christian experience is not about avoiding another mess. Um, it's about becoming something new, something better, something Christ-like through our mess. And if you missed that talk, you can go to the onechurch.tv app, download that app. You can watch that message, or you can listen to the podcast. You can go online to onechurch.tv. You can click on our uh, watch or sermons link, and you can catch up that. I encourage you, if you've missed any part of this series, go back and uh, connect with it. Today, we're going to look at three principles that connect with one big idea about how we process our mess. And we'll, like I said, we'll get there in a minute. I hate plumbing problems. Plumbing problems. Broken toilet, broken sink, broken faucets. Not a fan at all of plumbing issues. And because I always tend to have more questions than answers when it comes to those things. A couple of years ago, I was having some uh, issues with my bathroom sink and my upstairs bathroom. And you may have heard the story before. You'll live. I'm going to tell it again. So relax. Uh, but if you've not heard the story, I had some issues with that sink. And so in my infinite wisdom, I decided enough is enough. I'm going to fix the sink. Now, a couple of details uh, that I didn't consider when I jumped into this plumbing uh, problem is that number one, I'm not a plumber. And I'm not the son of a plumber, and I don't even have any plumber friends that I know about. So uh, the last person who needs to be moving towards a sink to do something other than wash their hands or brush their teeth is me. Like, stay away. You're not a plumber. So that was problem number one. Problem number two is I did not turn off the water supply before I started engaging uh, in hand-to-hand combat with this sink. Uh, And so you know what happens. One turn of a wrench, and blam! Everything starts spraying all over the place. Water is blasting all throughout the bathroom. Did I mention that it was hot water? Hot water, steaming, nice hot water, blasting all over the place. Uh, I, I just, I freaked out. I would love to tell you that I was dignified and I kept my cool and everyone relaxed. And that's not what happened at all. Uh, I won't go as far as to say that I cried, but I may have shed some tears in panic, uh, just freaking out. What in the world am I going to do? I look like a cartoon character bouncing all over the place. Thank God it was laundry day. It was laundry week, you know, so we had light, not some nice piles of clothes just laying around. Don't act like your house didn't look like that when you're separating clothes. Y'all looking at me all brand new. We had lots of dirty clothes around that we could just grab and attack this water that's piling up everywhere. So you got the kids throwing old clothes on the, on the floor to sop up the water, and the water starts leaking through the floor into our bathroom downstairs. So I got that thing happening. So I'm running back and forth, uh, putting buckets to stop water and freaking out. And uh, my poor wife had the painful task of trying to slow the water down. Good luck while I'm running around trying to figure out what to happen. Another thing I failed to mention, the only way our house is a little older, the only way to turn the water off is at the street with a tool that I didn't have. 
So really big problem uh, that we're messing. We literally look like Donald Duck and Goofy up there bouncing around. I'll let you figure out who was Goofy and who was Donald. But we were bouncing around trying to fix this problem, uh, and, and it just made everything a mess. I tried to fix my sink on my own, and I ended up making my mess messier. Have you been there? You have a mess, you have a problem, something in your life going wrong, and you tried to intervene and fix it, knowing that it was out of your league, knowing that you were the reason you were in the mess to begin with. But you thought, let me just do this one more thing, and it ended up making the mess messier. Maybe you thought there was a quick fix to your problem, only to discover that that quick fix wasn't a quick fix at all. When we're underwater financially, relationally, academically, on, a, on the job, whatever, uh, there's always going to be some bad options available to us. And those options often present themselves, they masquerade as a quick fix. They masquerade as the right thing. Sometimes bad options actually look like God options. They actually look like, well, this could be God helping me out. But the reality is they're not. They mess us up. So when the proverbial feces hits the fan in your life, you have a choice. Some of y'all caught that. You have a choice. You can make the mess messier or you can choose to do the right thing. Choose to do the right. And that's our big idea today. Don't add water to the flood. Don't make your mess messier. Do the right thing. So we're going to look at a story in the Bible that I think gives us some principles to help us make sense of that big idea. Now, you may not know this. Maybe you do. The Bible is full of characters who were messy. People, individuals, real humans who were jacked up, did jacked up things, lived jacked up lives. And, and some of those folks made their mess messier. Some of those folks got out of their mess when they chose to turn towards God's way and do the right thing. My favorite character in all the Bible is a guy named David. Have you heard of David? David, uh, you know, killed a giant, was a shepherd, did all this stuff. He rose to prominence in the, in the army. He kicked butt. He took names. He was a warrior of warriors, yet he was also a musician. So, you know, he, he had what we would want in, like, the perfect guy. He's artsy, he's sensitive, and yet uh, he could kill a giant if he had to. He was an awesome guy, and his life was kind of that same roller coaster. He was a mess. In fact, one of the darkest chapters in his life is recorded forever in 2 Samuel 11. We see how David got in his own way, became his own worst enemy, and made mistake after mistake after mistake that literally changed the course of his family. But in David, we also see the good news that no matter how big of a mess you make, God can still create a better story out of your life. Today, we're going to look at a story from David's life where he actually did the right thing. This is not a story of David's failure, but a, sta- a story of David having one small victory that God uses to, to change the course of his life uh, forever. And it's in 1 Samuel 18. You can turn there if you have a Bible with you. Go to the Bible app. It's going to be on the screen. But 1 Samuel 18, I'm going to start reading in uh, verse 14. It says, David continued to succeed in everything he did, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he was so successful leading his troops into battle. So for the sake of context, let me bring you up to speed. David, we know he started off as a shepherd. Then the Israelites were at war with a a nation of people called the Philistines. And the Philistines had this big giant. What was the giant's name? Goliath, right? And David ends up stepping up to the plate, kills Goliath. David, basically that was his enlistment, right? He, He joins the military, kills the giant, and he starts fighting all these battles. And he's really good at what he does. 
He's really good at taking out the enemy, doing his job well. So much so that he rose to national celebrity. Started from the bottom, taking care of dirty sheep, and he rose to national celebrity as the poster child for Israel's military. And the people actually would write songs about how David was better than the king. How David was a better warrior, better leader than the king. People sang songs about it. And so it got so bad that Saul basically turned his heart away from David and wanted to kill David. To complicate matters even more, David had a wife, and guess who his wife was? Saul's daughter. So David had the affection and love of the nation and the affection and love of the king's daughter, and the king was like, that's it. I've had enough. I'm going to take David out. Let's keep reading. Verse 28 says, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michael loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him And he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. So Saul absolutely got to the place where I hate David. I'm going to take him out. I want to kill him. For David, this is kind of a mo' money, mo' problems situation, right? I did all the right stuff. I've got everybody on my side. I'm climbing up the ranks. I'm being promoted. God is with me. The people are with me. And how do I get paid back? The king wants to kill me. The king wants to take me out. Listen, if you don't have haters in your life, if you're not running into opposition, let me just uh, be all the way real with you and say you're probably not doing anything of eternal significance. You're probably not rocking the boat. You're probably playing life nice and smooth and nice and easy. I would dare say if you're not running into the enemy of God, you might want to make sure you're not running with the enemy of God. This is not masochism. I'm not saying go out looking for pain, but there's a truth to when I'm doing God's things, God's ways, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be some tension. We have a tendency to want to run towards comfort, right? We want to run towards the easy way out. And so not all haters are bad. Sometimes that hater is God's sign to you that you're doing the right thing because they hate me too. They don't like me. They don't like you. We're on the same team finally. So David is in that Situation. Now let's fast forward way into David's. That was free. That has nothing to do with the message, by the way. But let's fast forward. First Samuel 24 <clears throat> says, After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of Engedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all of Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rock rocks of the wild goats. And at that place where the road passes the sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. As it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in the very cave. So you're with me in the story. David's done the right things. Now David's on the run, hiding from the king who just sent out 3,000 elite warriors to hunt him down and kill him. Again, David does the right thing, and his reward is 3,000 special operators trying to take him out. So David and his men, they come upon En Gedi, which is an oasis about west of the the Dead Sea there in Israel. So if you're familiar with desert environments, uh, you can kind of picture in your mind. There's a picture on the screen if you're not familiar, but it's literally this paradise in the middle of the hottest, one of the hottest places on earth, lowest places on earth. It's terrible, rough, harsh terrain. And here it's this bit of uh, respite in the middle of all of that pain. It's it's an R&R location for David and his men. We've been running through the mountains. We've been running through the hills. We're hiding in the caves. And finally, we get to a place that's really safe. Looks like a great place to pause and catch a breather. And sometimes what looks like the perfect opportunity for rest is actually the perfect opportunity for God to put us to the test to see how we're really going to respond. And so David and his men, they're sitting there in this cave. And let's see what happens. Verse 4, now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. 
Today, the Lord is telling you, I will, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. They're running through the wilderness and they get to this beautiful oasis. There's water, there's shade, there's a nice cave where we can hide. And you're in there just chilling out, minding your business. And look who shows up right at your front step. The very person who's trying to kill you. It looks like God provided David a way out. In that cave, there's no one around. No one can see. You're just there trying to hide, trying to catch your breath. And here's the very person that's out to get you right there. If you notice some of the language of David's, man, look, God has provided for you. Surely this is God setting you up for success. So there's three principles we really get out of this tale. And and the first one is this, when addressing a mess, first options are usually not the best option. First option is usually not the best option. God called David to be the king. David had served God by killing Goliath and doing all the things and honoring King Saul. And Saul was just bent on killing David. So clearly David's in the right and Saul is in the wrong. So this had to be God's plan. But not really, when you really think about it. Think about when you're in the middle of a mess, everything other than the mess looks like God's plan. When you're in the middle of pain, anything other than pain looks like the right thing, right? Because you don't want to be in pain. When you're broke, money looks like the solution to your being broke. And if we take that attitude, it's not hard to kind of have that ethical slip where we realize, well, I'll just do anything because anything is better than the pain that I'm in. So the first option is not always the best option when we're dealing with our mess. Several years ago, my wife's uh, car engine died. It didn't die. I killed it. But, you know, either way, it's not, it wasn't living anymore, so the car was broken. And at the time, we were consumer debt-free. You know what I mean when I say consumer debt-free? So we, other than house payment, we didn't have any other debt, no car payment, no insurance, none of that stuff. We were living that, that Dave Ramsey FPU life, except we didn't really have uh, the, the mighty... Uh, emergency fund sitting around to deal with some stuff. So we didn't have consumer debt. That's awesome. But I also didn't have three to six months of expenses tucked away somewhere. So the car was broken. And so we did what millions of Americans do, what some of you have done and are doing, is we reopened the door to debt in our lives in order to get out of our mess. I'm not saying that debt is sin and that if you have debt, you're an evil person. Uh, You should have been here for the FPU class at nine. They would have told you that over there. But in this room, in this safe space, I'm with you. I'm just joking. Relax, guys. I'm just joking. Debt is dumb, Dave says. So I, I violated a virtue in my life. I compromised one of my core values to get out of a mess. And do you know what it did? It reopened the floodgates for consumer debt and stupid debt in my life. And I'm still paying the price, working the plan, digging my own out, doing the right stuff now. But think what would have happened if I just would have never compromised that virtue to begin with. I made my mess messier because the first option seemed like the right, easy thing to do. And now in hindsight, I know, man, I just made the problem bigger. If David would have killed the king, it would have solved one of his problems, but it would have created a huge mess in his life. It would have created so many more complications for him had he had assassinated the king in that moment. Kind of like what what our mothers told us growing up, right? Two wrongs don't make a right. Now, for David, 
he's a soldier at warfare being hunted by a king trying to kill him. So killing the king in battlefield, that's not a wrong for David. It's warfare. But sneaking up behind a man who's just using the bathroom when you could have captured him or done anything, taking the crown by force, that would have been the wrong thing for David to do. So that's what we mean when we say the two wrongs don't make a right in David's situation. David killing the king would not have been the right choice for him. So when addressing the mess, we have to realize that the first options are not always the best option. We also have to choose virtue over shortcuts when we're addressing our mess. What do we mean by virtue? We mean the upright, the noble, the godly, the right stuff, the things we know, this is truth, and I need to walk in this truth and live this truth out. Rather than the shortcut, I need to choose virtue. Look at verse 5 of 1 Samuel 24. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. So David sneaks up ninja style. Not to gross you out, but like Saul didn't have an iPhone. Like what was he doing in that cave in the bathroom that he didn't notice another grown dude creep up on him and cut off a piece of his clothes? Like that's like trippy. Could you imagine being in the bathroom in the theaters here and someone cutting off your socks? Like you're that engaged and playing Angry Birds or whatever that you just didn't know another human being violated your space and grabbed you? Like I'm sorry, I think of weird stuff like that when I read the Bible. It's interesting. Um, Or maybe David was just that much of a ninja. I don't know. But either way, that's impressive that he snuck up and and was able to do that. But here's what's awesome and here's what's impressive is that the Holy Spirit of God bothered David. His conscience was immediately, he was bothered because he had cut the king. He came that close to taking a shortcut and doing the wrong thing. Instead of choosing the shortcut, he realized, whoa, something is off. And that's the awesome thing about God's spirit being in us when we say yes to Jesus is he, he does, he bothers us. There's a difference between guilt and condemnation, which I don't think that really comes necessarily from God, but that conviction of, I know this is the wrong thing. I need to change my behavior. If you've ever, if you've ever asked the question, you know what? I don't feel God right now. Congratulations. God is with you. Cause if he wasn't with you, you wouldn't care that you didn't feel him or did feel him. People ask me all the time, how do I know if, if God is in this situation, or if God is with me, or if God is in this situation? The fact that you ask that question means God's working on you. Because if he wasn't, you wouldn't be asking that question. You would not care. David was bothered because he was convicted. He didn't take a shortcut. Shortcuts seem like the best option. Um, my wife is from Columbia, South Carolina. Any of you guys from Columbia or been to Columbia, South Carolina? Got a couple of hands from what I can see out there in the vast sea of darkness. So I see that hand. Uh, we, we go to Columbia once or twice a year, sometimes three times a year uh, to visit family. Um, and we love being there in Columbia. I love the town. Uh, I hate the drive. No matter how I slice it, unless someone gives me a helicopter or buys my plane tickets, it's eight hours of driving. Nine when I go, because I lose the hour with the time change. And seven when I come back, but not really. It's eight hours. Eight hours in a vehicle. And, and my sons will ask me, is there a shortcut? Is there a faster way? And I wish I could find one, but the cold hard facts is there's no way for me to get there without going all the way you got to take the eight-hour trip. The same is true with the ways of God, the principles of God, the virtues of God. There's no shortcuts to the right thing. I wish I could fix your marriage in three easy steps. I wish I could tell you, hey, just do this and this, and life is going to be all good. I wish I could shortcut the, the grief stage of those going through loss. I wish you didn't have to do that. Maybe you wish you could shortcut the exercise phase of losing weight. Maybe you wish you could shortcut the hard work phase of 
making money and providing for yourself. Listen, if it's God's will for you, you got to trust his timing. You got to trust his process. And you got to understand that that axiom, good things come to those who wait. Like there's some solid truth to that. It's a process. It's a journey. And that journey is often going to take us through. I have to do the hard right thing instead of the easy wrong thing. There's no shortcuts in God's economy. If we ignore virtue, we're eventually going to make a mess. Eventually, we're going to make a mess. You can't clean up a mess caused by a failure in your virtue by committing another failure of virtue. It just doesn't work like that. So David, he chose virtue over a shortcut. His conscience bothered him because he realized that murdering the king would not honor God. Murdering the king like a snake hiding up in a cave and taking him out when he's not looking, that is not going to honor God. So David chose to do things God's way, which is really the third principle we get from this story is that when you're addressing a mess, going God's way will result in a story worth telling. It'll result in a better story. Let's keep reading. Verse 6 of 1 Samuel 24. David says to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men, and he did not let them kill Saul. And after Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, My Lord and King! And Saul looked around, and David bowed low before him. What would the story of David's life been like had he actually taken out Saul in that cave? Have you thought about that? David gathers up his grandkids 20 years later and says, let me tell you the story of how we became the royal dynasty. Uh, See, the king, he was having a number two in the corner, and I held my nose, and I snuck up, and I stabbed him in the neck, and he bled all over the place, and it was great. Could you imagine David telling that story to his grandkids? Here's how we came into power. I killed a man when he was at his most vulnerable using the bathroom. Oh, and I did it in a cave when no one could see. Could you imagine telling your kids the story of how you made your fortune by cheating on your taxes? Got real quiet, didn't it? Here's how I got promoted. I lied and blamed this other guy for something that I really did, and I got promoted, and he got fired. And that's how I became in charge. I stole. I cheated. Gather your grandkids around and tell them the story of how your marriage was on the rocks, and so you decided to go out and mess up someone else's marriage in order to make yourself feel good, and now our new family is the product of me going out and busting up. Could you imagine, like, that's the story that you tell? took a shortcut, took an easy out. I chose to do what felt good and right right now. I violated that virtue for the quick, easy gain. No one wants to tell that story, right? No one wants to tell that story. And when we choose shortcuts over virtue, when we just jump to the first option, many times that's what happens. Now listen, if you are that awesome blended family that has a story that may have started out like that, that doesn't have to be the end tale. God can redeem anything. He can buy anything back. If you got promoted and you know you cheated and you lied, it's never too late to be who you could be and to make that thing right today, to live a life of integrity and honesty right now. If you cheated on your taxes... Believe me, you got a chance to pay the government more than enough. So I don't say any of that to condemn you if you've done those things, but we got to remember what we do now matters. It makes a difference down the road, and we want to choose God's way to tell a better story. And that's what David chose to do. He chose to place God's ways above his own desires. Let's finish up reading 1 Samuel 24. Then David shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people 
who say I'm trying to harm you. This very day you can see with your own eyes that it's not true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It's a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I did not kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you're trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. I love that last sentence. Perhaps God's going to deal with you. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down, Saul. That's what he said. But I will never harm you. In that moment, David chose humility. Do you notice his language? My father, my king. He chose humility, honor, respect, mercy, and grace. And in the end, guess what happens to Saul? He dies. And it is not pretty. And Saul doesn't just die. Like his entire household, except for one guy, gets wiped out. Completely stripped of their power. All because Saul chose to be wicked. And that's another for another story. But David, he ends up being promoted by God to the position of king. He ends up becoming the greatest king of Israel. His son becomes the wisest man who ever lived. And if you fast forward through the narrative of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, into the New Testament, the Christian scriptures, guess who we see at the center of almost all of God's promises? David. God brings Jesus into the world, and Jesus' story is forever connected through this line of David. God actually says, I remembered my servant David, therefore, here's what I'm going to do. As you read through the Old Testament and see how God works, David chose the right thing. So when you have a mess to address in your own life, we've got to remember the first option is not always the best option. And I think this connects a little bit with accountability, right? David had accountability. He had his band of men. But in that moment, they weren't the right voice because they thought, oh, this has to be God. So we got to be aware of who are the voices that we're listening to. The first option is usually not the best option. So getting back at the person who wronged you, lashing out, taking risky, unnecessary risky gambles, that first option sometimes, it just makes things so much messier. Doing the right thing is difficult. See, doing the right thing doesn't offer the quick and easy fix. Some of you took 15 years to bust your life up, and you want God to fix it in 30 days or less. Come on, man. Like, it just doesn't work like that. You took seven years to dig yourself into a hole. You have been a jerk for 10 years, and now you just want to turn into the nice guy. No, bro, you got to work on yourself. It takes hard work. You got to pray, and you're going to have some ups, and you're going to have some downs, but you have to choose to do it God's way and not your own way. Make sense? Find the person that told you marriage was going to be easy and just go smack them. Like, they lied to you. You know it's not going to be. The person who told you that you're ever going to be ready to have kids is a fool. You're never going to be ready to deal with a, a blood-sucking and life-sucking, just doesn't earn their own keep kind of human. I love my kids. I love all kids. Jesus loves the little children. I heard a song about that one day. You're never going to be ready for that madness that is raising another human being. But we do the hard right thing, right? We love them. We're there for them. We remember that we were once a them. And so we, we can operate in some grace in that. Instead of jumping into the shortcut, we do the right thing. And what it results in is a story worth telling 
a story worth boasting in because look at what God did. We're not boasting in ourselves. We're boasting in what God did. God did. The, the right thing begins with following Jesus and following his ways. You and I, we're going to make our mess messier. We got to figure out how not to do that. So how do we live that truth out? Two, two simple things and then I'm done. The first thing is this. I have to learn the truth in order to live the truth. I have to learn what truth is in order to live out God's truth. See, the real story isn't your mess. The, the real story is how you respond to the mess. Someone once said, like, life is what, 20% uh, what happens to you, 80% how you respond. I don't know. Folks just making up statistics all the time. But it sounds good. Maybe that's true. I haven't done the research yet. It's hard to get a sample size that big to figure out, is that, is that legit science or not? Either way, our reaction matters. Can we agree on that? Our reactions matter. How we respond is the story. It's not so much that I was tempted to cheat. It's how did I respond to it? It's not so much that someone looked at me sideways and threatened me. It's how did I respond? That's the story worth telling. And if you're unfamiliar with God's ways or God's truth, then of course you're going to act in the opposite. If you don't even know what God says about your situation, how are you supposed to respond in a godly way, in a Christ-honoring way. So when you hear us tell you things like, read your Bible, try to apply it to your life, get into community, learn, study God's word, study God's word. That's why we tell you that stuff. Because when you're struggling, when you're going through the hard time, we want your responses to be based on what is the God way to respond to this. So you have to learn it. So with every series, uh, every message in this series, we've had uh, in, in the Bible app, we've had a weekly reading plan called Move Towards the Mess that connects with this sermon series. In fact, every Sunday at One Church, we have a Bible reading plan in that Version app. Thank God for technology that helps us be able to do that because we want to connect you with some real life truth, with something. But there's this awesome thing called Google that'll hook you up. Man, I'm feeling really sad, Carlo. What do I do? Google scriptures for when you're sad and God's going to flood you with, I'm not being, I'm not joking. He's going to flood you with tons of awesome information. His truth. What do I do when I'm angry? What does the Bible say to do when I'm really, really angry? I'm really angry right now. What's God's response and posture? The answers are really there for us. And the more I fill myself with God's truth, the more I find myself responding in his way. Many a fool has not been thrown on their back when they got up in my business and got up in my face because I know that's not what Jesus wants me to do. It's a quick fix. It's a lot easier for me to just choke you out than to deal with your nonsense over three months. I promise you, I just need seven seconds, right? It's a lot. I could put you to sleep a lot quicker than walking through the mess of your life with you. It's because I know God's truth. I know God's ways. Some of you are laughing. I'm serious. Like, got to pray through sometimes. Like, God, help me. I want to put my hands on this person, but I won't do it because you told me, don't do that. (laughs) That's not the right way. Seriously, learn God's truth. Learn the truth in order to live out the truth. We would be so much more merciful to each other if we really understood what God says about mercy. We'd be so much more understanding and gracious to one another if we really put what God says about grace and mercy into our lives and then we live it out. So, I encourage you this week, download that reading plan, read that thing, see what God says about the mess. So learn the truth in order to live the truth. And then don't add water to the flood. Simple concept. Don't add water to the flood. This week, when you are confronted with your mess, and you will be confronted with the mess, some of you are sitting next to your mess right now. Just be honest. I hope none of you are sitting in your mess. That'd be a, a bad thing. But some of you are sitting right next to your mess When you're confronted with that mess, 
Before you make a decision, before you act, ask yourself, am I about to add water to the flood? Am I about to do something or say something that's about to make things? Before you hit send on that rant that none of us want to read on Facebook anyway, could you just ask yourself, is this helping or hurting? Is this really going to make a difference or not? It's not going to make a difference, by the way. Spoiler alert. Nobody cares. Nobody's reading it. You're not that big of a deal. Like, how arrogant do we have to be to post a rant about someone, a president, a, a politician, or, or an artist on Facebook and actually think that that's making a difference in the world? I'll show them. I'll write a sternly worded letter. Get, get over yourself. The same energy you put into putting that negativity out. You know you have friends who need encouragement. Do you know you have pastors and leaders who are really, really bummed out and burned out, and you could actually just say, hey, Chris, thinking about you, love you, man, you're awesome. Hey, Katie, thank you so much for pouring your heart into my kids. Dave, thank you for the, the, putting up with those crazy sixth graders every single week. Dave, you rock. The same energy, the same character count that you put to rant about some randomness, you could actually be being a blessing to somebody's life and helping them out. So before you hit send, before you respond negatively, you got to ask yourself, am I putting more water into the flood? The Bible says in the book of James, we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. The Bible tells us to be still and know that he's God. There's something just godly about hitting pause before I respond, hitting pause and saying, wait a minute, is this going to help? Just that pause will save us so much trouble helps us apply this important biblical principle in our lives. So instead of reacting this week, be proactive by prayerfully considering, am I about to add water to the flood? Some of you in this room, you know what it's like to make your mess messier, but you also know what it's like to have the God of amazing grace come and clean that mess up. I know I do. So in the same way that I tried in vain to fix my plumbing problem, you remember that story? (laughs) Some of you are trying in vain to fix your junk. Stuff that without divine intervention, it's just not going to be fixed. Your marriage is a wreck, and you keep making it worse because you think you could fix it on your own. Listen, you can't fix your loneliness by running into an immoral or an adulterous affair. You just can't. It's not going to cure your loneliness. It's not going to make you feel loved to cheat on your spouse. I promise you it won't. It's going to make your mess messier. Don't do it. Let me say it another way. Your life might suck. And you're tired because your life sucks. And here's why you're tired, because you keep sucking it up. Is that too, too forward for you? I don't care. I mean, just you keep messing it up. You keep adding water to the flood. I don't have a magical potion to fix your junk. I wish I did. Look, I got my own junk to fix, to be honest with you. I wish there was an easy. But listen, we all know, and I know, You may not know him yet, but you can. There is one person that has been in the business of fixing our junk from the beginning of time. He's really good at it. When we bring our junk, cast our cares to Jesus, we say, God, I'm going to do it your way. He does the impossible and cleans up our mess and shows us a way out and provides us with community and gives us everything we need for life and godliness to live things, to have a better story. The biggest problem we've ever faced is our sin problem, and God fixed that. 
for us. So when we say yes to Jesus and we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And we say, yes, I'm saved. I'm a Christ follower. Yes, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. You guys were singing that song passionately. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. When we live that life, we are actually saying, I believe God can save me from the biggest mess I've ever been in. And if he can save you from your sins, he can save you from your, your money issues. He can save your marriage. He can save your nasty attitude. He can save you from that work problem. You just have to apply the same faith. The same faith you put in him to say, yes, I'm going to follow you. We apply that faith and we trust him. Jesus invites us to follow him. And when we do, he takes responsibility for the outcome of the journey. Isn't that awesome? He takes responsibility for getting us there. The mess just becomes the context for the real story. And that's God saving us, changing our lives. So don't add water to the flood. Don't make your mess messier. Do the right thing. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for saving us. I thank you that you are more than enough. God, you supply all of our needs. You provide for us. You've saved us, bought us back. And I just, man, God, it's so amazing what you do for us, not because of anything that we've done, but because of your mercy. Help us in this room, God, everyone here who, God, they're really, really struggling with getting in their own way. I pray this would be the day that they finally say, God, I've decided to follow you. I'm not going to get in the way anymore. And I thank you that when, when we choose to go your way, God, you always come through for us because you get the glory, God, when we win. Help us as we're dealing with our mess this week to choose to stop and, and ask ourselves, is this what God really wants for me? Help us to learn your truth. Let it be alive in our heart. And God, I thank you that when we apply your principles to our ways, we choose virtue over shortcuts. God, you save us every single time. We love you. Thank you for your saving power in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.